Hello, and welcome to PCOM Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Feldstein, and today we're speaking with Dr. Brian Nestor, President and CEO of Lehigh Valley Health Network, and a 1988 graduate of PCOM's DO program, as well as a 1994 graduate of our Master of Science program. Dr. Nestor joined Lehigh Valley in 1998 as chairman of the emergency department at Lehigh Valley Hospital, Muhlenberg, and served in numerous administrative posts before taking on his role as CEO. As the head of Lehigh Valley, Dr. Nestor oversees a comprehensive integrated health network that includes eight hospital campuses, plus numerous health centers, physician practices, rehabilitation locations, express care sites, and other outpatient care locations. Dr. Nestor serves on a number of boards and has been a guest lecturer at Columbia University's Graduate School of Business and Mailman School of Public Health for the last 15 years, focusing on issues related to healthcare reform, value-based care delivery, and strategy. Dr. Nestor completed his residency in emergency medicine at Einstein Medical Center in Philadelphia. He earned his MBA from Columbia University in New York. He is a certified physician executive through the American College of Physician Executives and has also completed his Certificate of Professional Development and Finance from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome, Dr. Nestor. It's great to see you and have you here with us today. Great chatting with you, Jay. Uh, I've got a couple questions for you. And the first one is, as the head of one of the region's major health systems, what has the last year and a half been like, and how have you adapted and maneuvered in your COVID response? Well, holy cats, man. It was a heck of a year. Uh, I know we had a chance to check in with each other throughout that period uh, because I know that uh, PECOM went through a really challenging period as well academically. You know, it was uh, like nothing we ever anticipated, like nothing we've ever seen. We trained for disasters, uh, and we've been very fortunate here at Lehigh Valley Health Network that uh, we have very uh, aggressive and deep bench when it comes to infection control and infectious disease. So uh, we always had plans in our back pocket. In fact, uh, you may recall the SARS uh, pandemic back in the right. day, early 2000s. There were three cases that penetrated the United States. And ironically, one of those three was at Lehigh Valley Hospital in Muhlenberg when I was there. Now, uh, thank goodness I was not the guy on, on duty that day. Okay, we had a bunch, a lot smarter docs working that day uh, that immediately identified a patient, took a great history that flew in from uh, China by way of Toronto into the Lehigh Valley Airport and felt really sick because he was at a wedding and immediately put him in a negative pressure room. Within 12 hours, the CDC landed at Lehigh Valley International Airport and we contained that patient. So we, uh, with that, uh, we've always had a deep expertise in infection control, and even are one of the three Ebola identified centers in the state of Pennsylvania. So no one wants COVID, that's for sure. No one wants another global pandemic, that's for sure. But we were really, we really had a leg up in terms of preparation. That's a, that's a good start to the, the beginning of the 18 month journey. Were you able to do your own testing? Because I know one of the challenges the entire public health system had in the healthcare system was, was being able to test in the early days of COVID? Yeah, really, really challenging. Everybody had problems getting the kit. And the kit was is really the 
you know, the, the substrate that you need in order to be able to do the test. Uh, obviously, there are 10 or 15 different major producers. We were, you know, like anyone else in line to try and get that. So the other piece you need other than the kits is you need the instruments. Fortunately, at LVHN, we have a for-profit laboratory subsidiary called uh, HNL Lab Medicine. And uh, we were at, in the early first eight weeks, we were uh, 20% of the state's COVID-19 testing. And we were able to help out local hospitals as well for testing their employees. So it was a real journey. And by the way, that struggle lasted for probably nine months. But after that, we had our own independent capability of doing nearly 4,000 tests a day. Uh, so uh, we uh, today can do probably about 6,000. Of course, there's not a big need right now, but those instruments and those testing uh, platforms will be available for the next crisis. The complexity of the healthcare system in the United States can make it difficult for patients to navigate their care. And COVID really brought that to the forefront. How do we as physician leaders make it easier for patients to get the care they need? And, and what have been some of your success stories from Lehigh Valley? Yeah, boy, I, I still remember, you know, that first week when, uh, you know, the governor uh, shut down a lot of our services across the state. And, you know, obviously patients still need their doctors. We made at LBHM, we made about a $2 million immediate investment in additional bandwidth and hardware so that we could juice up our telehealth program. Uh, now, pre-COVID, uh, you know, we did not have a great adoption on uh, televisits, if you will, you know, doctor visits by video. We were doing about 90 a month, not very many. It was available largely as an express care, easy access service that was really not adopted by the community. However, we, we had a pretty good platform to try and scale that across all our primary care and specialty base already when the time was right. So that initial $2 million quick quick hit investment allowed us to go from uh, about 90 a month to several thousand a day. We see about on average 10,000 patient visits a day. And we were uh, actually uh, having about 65% of those were I, at the peak were on video visit, e-chat, or phone call visits. So it, alternative media from face-to-face -face doctor time or advanced practice clinician time radically changed to these alternative channels. And you know what? It was surprisingly easy and the adoption went up quickly by patients. Now, here's the thing. I think now that the worst of the pandemic is over, what we've seen is what the rest of the nation has seen, a rapid trickle back down to not where we were before, but instead of 90 a month, about 15% of all, all of our visits. So think 1,500, not 6,500 are really done through these alternative means, video visits, e-chat, telephone. So where's it going to go now and what can doctors do now? I think you have to have these alternative channels available to you. I think you have to redesign your practice in order to, and frankly, within this, I think you can bring a little joy back to the physician practice too, uh, where you would have, you know, face-to-face -face encounters, but maybe you have a four-hour session where you're e-chatting back and forth, answering emails, or doing a quick video visit with a patient. The nice part is it's also helped to streamline consultations. So you know how it is. You go and see the doc and they say, oh, man, I tell you, I'm not getting your blood pressure under control. You're on three different medications. Let me send you to a cardiologist. Instead, 
let me dial up the cardiologist right now while I'm in the room with you. And you can put a, pull a cardiologist in, talk about how you might tinker with the meds, try this, and then see the cardiologist. So you're really, you know, expediting care, I think. Probably the area that we should use it the most and where I think, you know, it'll be best for patients is in behavioral health. Telepsychiatry, telebehavioral health with a licensed social worker in behavioral health is a godsend. We know that neither the federal government or the state has invested sufficiently in behavioral health in our communities. And to be able to scale those encounters, just giving people a person to talk to can really avert major, major problems. So I think we're going to concentrate its use in behavioral health. Certainly, we've already done that. And we have telepsychiatry now connecting psychiatrists with family medicine docs, allowing family medicine to do more psychiatry, more behavioral health care in the office without having to, you know, create a long queue getting into a psychiatrist, which can be months to wait. So those are the areas that I think holding on to some tele televisitation in the office, using e-chat, using email or text. We've made a big investment in text over the last couple of months because we really realized that people will adopt and engage in their care through text. So um, we're really hoping that those alternative platforms can help accelerate care, keep patients engaged and have better outcomes. You know, I know you've done a lot of work in value-based care and value-based purchasing. How do we package all the various delivery modalities into a comprehensive value-based package? So because yeah. one of the challenges we face is, are these paid in a fee-for-service model? Are they paid in a, in a capitated model? You know, is, is it a combination of the two so that as a society, we can afford all these different channels of care? Uh, Jay, I know you have uh, some deep experience in this with your insurance background. This is, this is a tough one. I'll tell you what really was a tipping point for us here as, as it relates to value-based care. Yeah, my, one of my prior jobs, you know, right after the Affordable Care Act was uh, largely in business development. My job was to determine how are we going to make money if we move towards a fee-for-value system or value-based care reimbursement. And, and very frankly, came back after a year and said, we're, we, we are blanked, you know, pick your own word. I mean, we are unable to make money in a future that looks like it's pure value-based care. And that the, the constraint I had was a business constraint, that that's, that's just about the economy, the economics. If we're getting paid less to do more, right? Remember, uh, the Affordable Care Act said a few things to you. Uh, by the way, you're going to take care of every one of these darn boomers, 10,000 new Medicare beneficiaries per day being minted, okay, for 30 years, by the way. We are going to have all the states expand Medicaid uh, benefits. By the way, both of them are really good, good things and good ideas, right? Uh, but oh, by the way, two bad things are coming your way also. Number one, there will be no new money coming to you from the federal government. OK, so don't think we're going to fund this for you. You're going to have to take it out of out of your uh, current pool of dollars. Uh, and number two, you can no longer go to that other bank, the commercial insurers, to get six, eight percent increases in order to make up for the losses. So, you know, I at that time, we were too focused on looking at it as a business problem where there was no new money. Right. So fast forward, you know, what we started to do is say, OK, well, you know, let's know more about our patients. And, and what, we, what we did was, and you, uh, you can appreciate this, we looked at um, uh, roughly 170,000 acute emergency department visits and admissions in calendar year 2012, right? 170,000. 
And I asked the team, I said, you know, do a, a frequency histogram, if you will, on profitability, where the midline of that uh, graph is we make nothing. To the left, we lose money at $500 increments. To the right, we make money at $500 increments. And lo and behold, when it came off the printer, it was normally distributed data. Unbelievably, right around the zero mark. So for anyone who likes math, you look at that and you go, you got to be kidding. This is unbelievable. Now, it did have two tiny humps. Those two tiny humps were at the first and second standard deviation on both sides. So we say, now we know we know what to do now. We can fix this problem because we're losing money on half our patients. We're making money on half our patients. If you were a car salesman, that's a pretty bad book of business, right? You got to make right. something. Well, there's as it turns out, I we, we knew the answer. At least we thought we did. We said, well, it's got to be that some of these patients are really costly to take care of. And no matter what payment we get, we're not going to make enough money. So I said, now let's take a look at the top 20% most expensive patients across that normally distributed data. And when that came off the printer, you won't believe the result. I know we did. It was normally distributed. So we made money on people, okay, that were highly caught, very costly. And we lost money on people almost at exactly the same normal distrib distribution. So then you start saying, well, how now what's, what's behind this? Who are these people on the left-hand side that we keep losing money on. And that's where the big duh came. And the duh was, they are socially isolated, financially fragile seniors. They are veterans. They are, and they are the socio and economically obstructed and uninsured in our, in our, in our uh, communities. What a big surprise. It's government pay, all right? It's people that are not getting enough care proactively. So, or they aren't getting the assistance, the disproportionate assistance they may need to get to their doctor so their outcomes are worse. These are the people you and I saw, Jay. Rinse, repeat, DKA. You come in, blood sugar's 1100. Hey, Jim, you're back again. We'll intubate you. You know, we'll you know, reduce your acidosis, send to the ICU. We get your blood sugar down. Aren't we great? What a great resident case, right? Send them out and three weeks later, they're back in. What we didn't, those types of patients don't have a car. They may not have a loving family shelter, adequate income in order to even buy the bus ticket to get to the doctor, no less buy the insulin or the insulin pump. And they certainly are not going to be able to show up to see the wound clinic for the, 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 the diabetic ulcer on their heel. They're not going to be able to show up for nursing education and diabetes Tuesday, Thursday nights. Uh, they're not going to be able to take off work and ask the supervisor, hey, can I add a work an hour on at the end of the day? Sure, Jim, no problem. This person's gone for an hour, they miss an hour of work, they're out of a job. So, you know, we started to realize that the solution is really in providing disproportionate better care for those people who are not accessing care. And guess where the pot of money is then? That on our, we all as not-for-profit organized hospitals submit a 990 form, any not-for-profit, you do too, uh, submit a 994. And that's, for us, that's interpreted as patient direct care shortfall. And what we had been seeing is that we've been seeing a doubling of those dollars uh, for every four years for the last 20 years. By the way, in 2014, that when we had the aha, that number was $440 million. So it had gotten to 440 where this is subsidized care. And the, the fastest moving component in that was uh, Medicare and Medicaid at $300 million. And that had been doubling every three years for the prior 12 years. 
So for us, the new bank of money was prevent those people from coming in the house by giving them better care, prevent them from being costly, try and avoid really sentinel clinical events that will result in millions of dollars of cost over the course of their lives, or at least push it off a few years. And there's a time value of money benefit in that. And that actually became our new business model, frankly. And that is why we chased value-based reimbursement very aggressively over the last seven years, because we now uh, went about trying to get all the claims from all of our clinical, uh, all of our commercial carriers. So our top 18 carriers give us monthly downloads and claims. Um, and we merge that with our Epic clinical data. And we have a very robust prospective rest stratification model where we identify people that are falling off the rails and we go chase them and we give them better care and we prevent them from having bad things happen to them. And that's lower cost and higher quality value. Well, I think you uh, just uh, gave an excellent real-time operational description of population-based medicine. You are managing Absolutely. your population. In fact, okay. Jay, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. In, in 2014, we actually went back to our board and said, listen, we figured it out. Uh, we don't have a vision statement, but we think we should have one. And this is what we'd like you to endorse. We will leverage our position as a premier academic community health system and become a leader in population health to improve the quality and outcomes of the patients we serve. Population health is its centerpiece of that. You're exactly right. Well, we're obviously very proud of our alums at PCOM, with many going on to be leaders such as yourself in healthcare. So what advice would you give to our current PCOM students about their own careers and the current environment new health professionals are entering? Well, probably a, a qualifier right off the bat. You probably shouldn't ask me that, uh, mostly because I have an opinion on everything, as you know. Uh, so I'll give you an opinion. It may not be the right, the right one. Uh, you know, quick anecdote, you know, uh, Tina, my wife graduated in 89. Uh, so imagine having two malignant firstborn ER docs as parents. Um, okay. And uh, our poor daughter, who grew up thinking that we were, you know, people live in scrubs, uh, because we, one of us was in scrubs for the first, you know, 20 years of her life. And uh, so she always wanted to be a doctor. And we said, nah, 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 you only want to do that because that's all you know. So we actually prevented her from taking any science courses in four years of college at Lehigh and figured, you know, if she gets through all that, she still wants to do it, you know, then we'll support her. And uh, so fast forward, that's why you may not want to ask me what to do. We can, we, we can get a little ER-ish in our advice, uh, you know, actually, and remember, there is only one normal pH, 7.4, okay, 7.39 is acidotic. OK, so just, uh, you know, a reminder of where this advice comes from. And uh, but we're, we're thrilled that she went back, did a couple of year post back at Jeff and is now uh, going to matriculate this spring, uh, this fall at uh, PECOM. We couldn't be happier. And so she's passionate about it. So this is a live question in our mind. What do we tell her? And I would tell you that, you know, it's been a long journey since, you know, graduating from PCOM in 88. Uh, it's been, uh, you know, a lot of fun, a lot of learnings. Uh, there were some really high moments uh, and low moments where in the net, my goodness, uh, becoming uh, an osteopathic physician is, uh, is just a, a wonderful, wonderful journey. And, and there are some basic truths that I don't think change. Uh, you know, while a lot of kids feel very pressured to go out and get into surgical or procedural specialties because they tend to pay more money uh, and they have to pay off their debts, 
you know, we've watched that happen over the last 25 years. Uh, and I think some people are not that happy in what they do because it's not really where their passion was. I think that uh, you should decide what kind of doctor you want to be uh, based on where your passion lies. And, and, and fundamental to that, and it's such a strong osteopathic principle, is really getting to know your patients, understand who they are, where they come from, what their issues are in their life, uh, what, what, what things are driving their behaviors. Are they at risk for bad behaviors because of those stresses? Whether you're a neurosurgeon, an orthopedic surgeon, a gastroenterologist, or a pediatrician, those things matter. Their core, and and you got to find your own path uh, where you can embrace those principles, and and then still have a trade that you you enjoy every single day, whether that's technically or cognitively. We have uh, the full breadth of uh, services across osteopathic medicine, certainly, and I my advice would be try and be diverse over those uh, first four years. On try and uh, explore as many specialties as you can. And, and pick the one that you're passionate about. Don't let money drive your decision. You can be successful in any, any specialty you pick, but you, you, this is a long run. It's a 40-year career or more for some, and uh, it'll work out if you pick the right specialty. Uh, that's uh, great advice. So, you know, we've got a, a little time left. Uh, if you've got any questions for me, I'll be more than happy to answer them. Yeah, I, I've learned, of course, uh, by getting a daily update now on what's going on at PCOM, <laughs> that uh, you're really expecting that you will uh, have face-to-face -face, uh, classes. I guess you're uh, requiring a vaccination like so many other higher educational institutions are uh, to allow for a safe environment. I guess I had a big question, are you going to be, uh, is that true, number one? And then also, will you be able to get back to uh, also full-on uh, osteopathic uh, manipulative practice, you know, in terms of the laboratories, learning how to do a structural exam. Is all that going to occur this year? Can we get there? So the short answer to both is yes. And in fact, Wonderful. we kept the OMM going during COVID. We just put everybody in the proper PPE. We, we put everybody in N95 respirators. In the classroom, we kept the lab partners constant through the course of the year. We did uh, surveillance testing throughout the year to keep everybody safe. But in fact, we did keep the OMM labs and the physical diagnosis labs going during the entire pandemic. And uh, with great results, by the way. We're gonna be 100% in person now at least from an academic standpoint, I think from a support administrative standpoint, I don't know if you've got the same challenges. A lot of people adapted very well to working from home mm -hmm. in certain administrative yeah. areas. So we're kind of feeling our way through that in a hybrid form, at least till the kids get back to school, because it seemed that that's right. the number one challenging factor for a lot of our uh, workers is in their family situations is once their kids get back to school full time, they'll have more flexibility in their ability to return to work. Yeah, so, you know, as we look forward in terms of value-based care, and as you laid out, you know, all of the pieces that have to go with that for value-based care to make an impact, higher quality care to lower cost, you know, reducing trend and episode costs uh, in healthcare in the U.S. while maintaining or improving quality. Uh, so much of that, as we look at it, is, you know, 
obviously you need specialists that will do, uh, you know, perform uh, extraordinary procedures, but do them on the appropriate person and not overutilize those procedures. That's a big piece. But I would say probably 75% of it is really having robust, well-supported primary care providers. And uh, osteopathy as, has always driven a disproportionate share of uh, primary care practitioners. I really see the next decade plus hopefully being the time of the primary care provider um, and putting, giving them the ball, quarterbacking care, uh, giving them the tools, whether it's telehealth or other tools to allow them to really be able to manage lives at a population health level. I think it's a very exciting time for primary care. Do you suspect that DCOM will still be able to produce primary primary care providers and get those students jazzed about that opportunity? I hope so. You know, we are still positioned that way. This year's graduating class, you know, 60% go into a primary care field. Wonderful. And, you know, I think we'll continue to see that because it's, <laughs> no pun intended, it's in our bones. You know, yeah. we are a holistic profession, hands-on. And, you know, I think we'll, we'll continue to turn out great primary care physicians. Because I think at the end of the day, a great, well-trained primary care physician is the ultimate value-based deliverer of care with the appropriate support services and data to allow them to allocate their time and services in the appropriate fashion. And we continue to make the primary care in our healthcare centers kind of requisite, you know, in the fourth year so that we give people the adequate Mm -hmm. exposure, both in urban and rural settings. Because I think, you know, rural yeah. healthcare is one of the greatest and underserved areas, as well as the inner cities to address healthcare disparities. So that's, you know, it's yeah. our mission and we'll keep moving it forward. Brian, I want to thank you for joining us today on PCOM Perspectives. Dr. Nestor's role as president and CEO of Lehigh Valley Health Network provides a bird's eye perspective on the healthcare system as a whole. And I think we all heard that today. And his background as an emergency medicine physician keeps him grounded to the needs of patients. As the future of healthcare is determined post-pandemic, leaders like Dr. Nestor will be charting the course for delivering high-quality care through technology and innovation. To listen to past episodes of this podcast and become a subscriber, visit our SoundCloud page or find us on iTunes by searching Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. I'm Jay Feldstein, and this has been PCOM Perspectives.